we are doing something new where we're recording two episodes back to back. So we're very proud of ourselves. We just took a break to get sandwiches. And now today we're going to be finishing the second part of the Lee Miller episode. And it's a whole new story. It's a whole new situation. For those that don't know, we we talk usually about fashion. I would say aesthetics. Like we talk about aesthetics and subcultures and why clothes are an important language for different movements. Yeah. And Lee Miller was a part of like the Surrealist movements and did a lot of photography and was a model. And she worked with Vogue. So she's a really good example of crossovers between art and fashion anywho listen to the first episode if you haven't or if you're just like i only want to know about lee miller's work during world war ii well that's what we're going to talk about today yeah just so you guys know we are diy and if you aren't down for that if you're expecting a grade a quality i'm sorry uh this ain't it we like you know have full-time jobs and we have a little bit of a tinge of adhd so it's really hard for us to do things and the fact that we're showing up i think we deserve five stars for yeah before we get started talking about lee miller jackie i'm dying to know (laughs) what's trending for you okay so we just did this so we were scrambling our brains for what else is trending for yeah, us? Yeah, because w- this is the first time we recorded since December, so... Well, I don't know. There's so many things that are trending for me. I do feel like there's been... Okay, let's let's say this. I feel like there's been a trend of, like, energy for me. I feel like I've been energized in a weird way. Maybe it's my medication. Probably, now that I think about it, it is. <laughs> but it still feels like there's been a bolt of electricity, like, through my veins. And I'm excited to meet people. I'm, like, putting myself in situations where I get to, yeah, be with strangers that I haven't done in a long time and socialize. And that's been really trending with me. Having crushes has been trending with me. I mean, I have a crush on this band right now, like Johnny Franco. I've been obsessed with this, not even a big deal band, but I... Johnny, if you're listening. <laughs> definitely not. I only know that's his name. Um, I've gone on dates. I've been going line dancing and falling for everybody there. Anyways, it's just like... So I'm really having a good time in my body. Right. You're like, you're really physically showing up in the world right now. Yeah, exactly. And I'm just like, couldn't be more excited about it for some reason. It's not always like that. That's why it's trending. Right. Yeah, I definitely witnessed it. I'm trying to support it, you know, (laughs) trying to help you, you know, go to line dancing Mm -hmm. and it's fun to To dance. it's It's fun to dance and move and like hang out in a new way. It was fun on Friday when I stopped by when you guys were at the line dancing and dancing with Rye. It's like at this point, dancing is partner dancing so normal to me that it doesn't feel weird at all. Mm -hmm. But it's still it's like, yeah, Rye and I have never danced. Yeah. Touched like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's so healthy. I touched some strangers. I touched a lot of strangers. That was kind of fun. Wait, so what what did you step? Oh, yeah. I also did the barn dance where you literally touch oh, like 50 different right, right, people right, and right. I felt like I hadn't done that. I think it's good for your soul. Yeah. Like there is that whole like you have to have some kind of skin touching happening or you get deprived of it. Skin to skin content. Or skin to skin contact. <laughs> skin to skin content. 
It's real life Instagram. <laughs> skin to skin content, I think, is porn. <laughs> That's fair. It has been exhilarating, and I'm excited to be alive. That's a, that's saying a lot. I don't know. That's where I'm at, you guys. Yeah, you you're on the up and up. I've also been doing that manifest thing, or like the law of assumption. Law of attraction. But it's called a law of assumption now. Right. I don't know. I think people are like, let's get rid of. I don't know why, but that's what I've been seeing. And the the thing that TikTokers like, it's gotten really popular that people are like, I don't know, mantra is like, I'm the luckiest girl. Or I'm the luckiest person. I'm so lucky. The universe is always looking out for me. It always works out. And it's not that necessarily things change. It's when you start to have that mantra and it's, you, you say it all the time, it's not like things are different. I think your perspective is different. Because like now I'm seeing like, even if I run out of gas, I'm like, well, I'm lucky to have friends to help me out. I'm lucky that it wasn't raining. Like there's a lot more like grace and gratitude toward, the, toward even the hardships. And not to say there isn't going to be hardships, but... I feel like there has just been a kind of a bigger shift in my mindset because I've been doing that mantra like every morning. That's good. Honestly, I don't know how to say this without sounding like an asshole, but that's like kind of how I think. Like <laughs> on a regular basis. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I think it's like, don't think ever think anything bad's gonna happen. And part of that is just like, I haven't had family members die tragically. You know, like it's part of it's just like, but there have been things that have happened. But yeah, I feel like it's, it is really helpful. It's, it's, a, it's a helpful way to go through life. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. So what's trending for you, Hope? I forgot to ask that question. Um, trending for me is like city life. Like we've, I feel like we're on a very similar page with our what's trending right now. And I've just been both like excited to give myself time to stay home and like do art and just like not schedule myself because I tend to over schedule myself. But at the same time, also feeling really present in Seattle. Like I'm feeling excited about the work I'm doing as an urban designer. And I've been excited to like go out and see art and like talk to the people who are doing stuff. And I feel like also putting out our Seattle anti-fashion episode, we've connected with some more people around Seattle we're meeting up with someone next weekend to talk about a project we want to do and it's just been really fun to feel like there's things happening in my city and I'm part of that and I want to like put more energy into being a part of that yeah because I think like you can consume or you can create and it's good to do both but I think like I've always felt the most sense of the best sense of community when I'm like part of a group that's like putting things on and like creating mm -hmm creating things so I haven't really felt like I've had that in Seattle even though we all were like oh we're doing landscape architecture it didn't feel rooted in Seattle didn't feel mm -hmm. rooted in place you're so right and so I feel like I'm feeling more rooted in place in that way me too I'm feeling like the Seattle is part of the friendship like it's a character in the life that we have well and it's like if we all care about our city together especially if we care about it in a way where we're like we want it to have more art we want it to have more housing and if you're on the same page as people it feels like fun so yeah with that said jump into the episode there was something that lee miller actually talked about how she hated writing because she starts writing mm -hmm. and to your point of like well the love of collaborating. I She did too. She liked to collaborate, be around people and writing's such an isolating job. It's such an isolating piece of art. Like, yeah. You can't really, you can, I guess, but it, like to make a novel, you have to really hole up in a wall and not talk to anybody for a while. And Right. She was super collaborative. And at the point that we're starting today, it's, you know, World War II has just struck and she's working at Vogue for a while. And one of the ways that she was collaborative is that when she was shooting for Vogue, Sometimes she would shoot at her friends' galleries. Like when their art was up at a gallery, she would do Vogue shoots in the gallery so that her friends' art would be like in the background, which I think is super cool. 
And like last episode, we were talking about how they really make it, they really drive this point home of like, she was so much like her dad, but I feel like her gregariousness and how warm and and like friendly she was, who knew, if that, who knows if that came from her mom or her dad, but that was also a quality that like really allowed her to do what she did. Yeah. So she got a job with British Vogue and um, Anthony Penrose, aka her son who wrote this. He wrote The Lives of Lee Miller, which is one of the biographies we're referencing in this episode. The other one is called Lee Miller in Fashion by Becky E. Konikin. She didn't want to be held down, so she got a contract by with British Vogue where she was like considered an independent, but they like hired her. And he likes to be very clear on like British Vogue was generally known as brogue. And then he also talks about how French Vogue was known as Frogue. <laughs> and I thought that was very... It's like, insider tip for you. Yeah, and I was like, I've never heard that. Maybe I'm not in the know like everybody else is. Maybe but... it was back then, but... But yeah, so she... Like, they discuss, like, during World War Two, like, how Brogue had a very strange relationship with the violence of that period. And they barely mention it. Well, at first... At first, they barely mention it, and Lee Miller shows up at the British Vogue office, and like it's been a while since she was worked, right? She's been in Egypt with Aziz. She hasn't been working. She had like packed up her studio, and she shows up to the Vogue office, and they're like, "No thanks, we're staffed," uh, but she just keeps showing up, and eventually they're like, "Fine, like you can you can work for us," and she starts whatever doing her projects. And in the beginning. A lot of British Vogue during the war is about telling women, you've got to still put your makeup on. You've got to still look good because you're responsible for like the morale of the country. And it's a lot of the content is about like how to do your makeup when like you don't, when like makeup rationing made it so that you didn't have a lot of makeup. Like this was not Gen Z like pouring foundation down their cheek. Like this was really making the most go a long way. Also like how to deal with the fashion rationing. So that's like in the beginning. I don't think they were there yet at this point. Not, not in 1939 because they talk about here, even the reckoning of the Vogue office in o- October 1940, they didn't even mention it. Right, right, exactly. So in the beginning, they're like, they're underground. They're literally in an underground bunker while the war is going on, London's being bombed. Like, I honestly, I'm not like a war buff, obviously. And so I just like never, I forgot that like London was under fire that continuously. Yeah, it's called the Blitz for a reason. Yeah. And so they were all just like literally in underground bunkers, shooting shots for Vogue. Things had to go on. But at the same time, they were rationed. Publications were rationed. They could only produce like at a percentage of what they were publishing before. You had to have a subscription. You weren't getting Vogue on the newsstand and they absorbed like Vogue pattern book, Vogue beauty book, Vogue house and garden book all into one Vogue, one British Vogue during this time. Also the pattern house was obliterated as well and they couldn't ignore that as much. You know, they couldn't be like, like they had to be like, obviously we don't have patterns for you guys, but don't be too mad. Here's some pictures that Lee Miller took. To prove to you, oops, you know, we don't have the patterns available because um, it's been completely crushed and knocked down. Also, there were tons of Victorian homes that were just completely obliterated at, at that time. Something that I noticed when I went to London was I wanted to see Victorian homes because I was like, where else would that be? Yeah, my friend was like, most of them were knocked down by the Blitz um, or that time period. So you don't really, there's like like a row that still exists. Yeah. And so then in, in 1941, Britain announces a utility clothes scheme. I'm going to go into a little bit of like what I learned specifically in the Lee Miller in fashion book. Um, so there's clothing control 1941 
or they call it CC1941, CC which is a label that ensures that gar- garments comply with government regulations. So the government wants to make sure that things are well-made, durable, and long-lasting. It's like basically the opposite of what we have now. The government is like stepping in and saying like, you can't produce shit unless it's long-lasting. They enlist London fashion designers, the government does, to make prototypes for utility clothes. They have a series of making of civilian clothing restriction orders, which ban trimmings. They ban embroidery. They prohibit wasteful pattern cutting. You can only have maximum two pockets per dress and five buttons. And so like Vogue is coaching people on how to like deal with these restrictions on their dress. But it's basically like we could be doing that right now for climate change. The government could literally like mandate that we only make durable things or that we only recycle or that we only... Right. Whatever. And it's- well, during the wartime, they definitely were like, everybody needs to have their own garden. They were called mm-hmm. victory gardens. Yeah. And those kind of mindsets and like they like spread out seeds and all that stuff. Okay. But like, yeah, we don't do that. And it's clear because I don't know. Like, we're not in a war. That's the only way. Right. And it's like we, because America or like people have a like they understand war as like a dire time but we can't get people or the government to understand climate change is a dire time well it's not based in nationalism right and i think that's the only way that motivates people is like being connected to some kind of united cause and well like not getting bombed hypothetically or the threat u.s never really got bombed except for pearl harbor right but they didn't know they weren't going to yeah but that was the it was the threat yeah right yeah so it's like people being like well my kids in 50 years might get burned to a crisp, but, but I don't feel like enough fear Yeah, somehow. Exactly. And But also there's something that's interesting to note that this is 19, 1939 to 1944. That in, was her time in, in London during World War II. And something to note is like, it's the we're coming out of the 30s and the depression is waning because, especially in the American, the USA, is because we're starting to like participate in the war by funding it. Or not funding it, providing like weapons and stuff for it. So the way that we got out of the Great Depression, people need to remember, is war. Well, yeah, war shifts economies. It's like profitable. I was just reading about how Japan came out around, the, it, basically right after World War II was the Korean War of 1950. And Japan was producing weapons for that war. It's like, basically, war shifts money that's like kind of the point yeah and i just think people think oh we can get out of it i don't know like comparing the great depression to what like 2008 markets like the thing that's going to get us out of depression and info and um inflation is literally war like um roland like any good mistress builds lee an air raid shelter so they have like an underground spot where they can go hang out hide from the bombs there's like a dog or a cat i think that there's some story about the cat the cat's name is taxi so she named that wet she named the cat taxi because it never came when called in the blackout <laughs> um okay and i want to talk about camouflage for a second yes so at this point roland and lee are together right um they're living in london together she decided to stay there and work on Vogue, whatever. But Roland and his friend, Julian Tre- Trevelyan, Trevelyan, are on a boat coming back from America or something, and they decide that the way that they can contribute to the war effort is by developing new techniques for camouflage. And so they, de- they a group called Industrial Camouflage Research Unit in 1939, 
A year later, the government shuts down commercial efforts like this and they absorb them into the Royal Engineers Camouflaging Development and Training Center. So there's like this motley crew of surrealist artists, Roland and his friend Julian, along with a magician and a zoologist. And these people are all hired. This sounds like a crew of fuckboys if I've ever heard it. It's just like... (laughs) Magicians are not fuckboys. Yes, they are. Magicians are like... If they're funny... Funny magicians? What, like all the freaks sleep with them? Yeah, dude. I just feel like magicians are the most made fun of in high school. But you do fuck them still, I guess. Yeah, Chris Angel. I watched this. I am intrigued and I do want to go to a Chris Angel show. But like, you know, did you ever watch The Girls Next Door? You remember Heidi? She dated Chris Angel for a while. Oh, really? Yeah. And apparently Britney Spears did too. Okay. All right. Fine. It's 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 a group of fuck boys. Okay, so there's this crew of them working for the government, and there they're learning techniques from the 1914 war, which I'm like, does that mean World War One? But they didn't call it that. It must be. It is like I guess when you're a writer, you can't say World War One over again a bunch of times. Anyway, so they're learning these techniques where plaster trees are put out to like hide snipers at night, and you use plaster heads as decoys. You put them in the trenches, and then the enemy will like fire on them, and then you'll know like where the enemy snipers are. And plaster is interesting because like in our past episode about surrealist art, we learned that plaster was kind of like not a cool material until the surrealists. Like it wasn't like considered a fine art material, right? Like plaster is like what you use to patch up your wall or like whatever. But the surrealists really piloted the use of plaster because they were always making weird fucking body parts with it, like making their little mannequins. And it's easier to make than concrete or something. Yeah, it's like, right. And so they... They knew this technique, basically. And so they were able to come in and help make these decoys for the government. They also... Surrealism was closest to a camouflage way of thinking. Surrealist techniques such as simulation to mimic reality, dissimulation to decompose reality, and metamorphosis to transform reality were all designed to put the viewer's certainty of sight and powers of reasoning into question. They are are also basic techniques of military camouflage where the objective is to use visual surprise and disorientation for military gain. So like that was like part of why like surrealist artists were like predisposed to be good at doing this. And then decades later, Penrose wrote in his biography of Picasso that Harlequin, Cubism and military camouflage had joined hands. The point they had in common was the disruption of their exterior form in a desire to change their too easily recognizable identity. So that's like an interesting way surrealist artists were like connected to World War II. There was also the use of embroidery for camouflage. Lee Miller photographed this um, in late 1942. There was these women, these tapestries, embroidered tapestries made by WVS needlewomen. And they were making these textiles because it was more important to mimic the texture of the landscape than the color. Because when you're taking aerial photography, it kind of like the color doesn't really matter. It's picking up the differences in like tone or whatever. So women were embroidering textiles for the government to use in camouflage and just crazy, man. So he published... Penrose published the Home Guard Manual of Camouflage and went around lecturing about these techniques. And in one of his lectures, he includes this like naked photo of Lee. Oh, that Penrose is uh, Roland. Roland, yeah. He like... Ooh, I like that. I know. It's like her covered in like black stuff. It's like he was just trying to like 
spice up his presentation, I guess. But anyway, um, the photo, the naked photo was taken by David E. Sherman. I'm not sure how much they talk about that in that book, but maybe I just forget. But Sherman was living with Lee and Roland because Roland... They talk about it a little bit. They do, yeah. Roland was away a lot and Lee met Sherman and he, he took him as her lover. He was 25. And How old was she? She must have been at this time. She was born in what, 19... She wasn't that old. I feel like she's still in her 20s. Born 1907, and this is... I guess she's not. This is 1940. So she was like, yeah, she was in her 30s. Damn, the math the math that we all just try to do. Yeah. So so she's like, hey, can I just go live with David Sherman? And Roland's like, no, let's all live together. So they were all like throupling in a house, and he photographed for Life magazine. So he um, taught Lee his photojournalistic approach, which comes in handy later. Yeah, exactly. Oh, by the way, Roland Penrose comes from like a really strict Quaker background. Oh, right, right. Yeah. He was a conscientious objector to the war. There, The war really brought people together, I guess you could say. Yeah. Um, but there was a lot of like hatchets that were buried because is – that, is that the term? Mm-hmm. Um, because it just didn't seem to matter. Well, yeah, because you're like, I'm against war, but we're at war and I don't want to get my, I don't want my whole city to get bombed forever. Right. And you kind of start to realize all the friendships that you have and how like important they are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Just yeah, remember yeah. that hope. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyways, but uh, Lee meets Valentine, which is Roland's ex-wife, and they get along decently. Um uh even during like the like Roland and her were living together and like I said he was had a very Quaker background which means like very austere in the sense of of design um but Lee really spruced it up and like put up all his friends art including like Picasso, Barack, you know, all Barack or Baroque? Baroque? I don't know B R A Q U E um tunard i don't know these are just a lot of a lot of people max ernest of course who's like but bestie um on all up in the art and they're all real but that was like only a portion of his whole collection he also had sent some to theodore um miller which is lee's dad um and yeah they were just surrounded by art even though the war was going on right outside their window yeah yeah and so lee is taking pictures for vogue at this time and one thing they talk about is how you can really see her sense of humor come through. And one of the ways is that they had this statue at her and Roland's place. And it was like some horny, like vaguely phallic maybe statue. And like the neighbors were upset about it. It was literally like written about in the newspaper. And Lee posed one of her models for Vogue in front of this like horny statue. And so it's like kind of like a tongue in cheek joke. She also has like people in like with huge like fake bears and giraffes like in in vogue shoots and one thing that this author talks about which i thought was insightful was that like with this kind of photography that's for a magazine it's really the unpublished photos that are really telling because it's like the shit that she was trying to do that was like too much for Mm -hmm. vogue and i mean when you look at the photos that she took like she it's like they are surrealist. She's using really like interesting perspective and like wacky props and it's fully art. But then there's also like another layer of like when she like went too far for Vogue and they 
they wouldn't publish things. Um, and then, sorry, go ahead. No, go on. And then in 1942, American servicemen arrive in England. I was going to start talking about her when she like enlists. Oh, yeah. Uh, before that, I just want to mention that she was really bored most of the time with the assignments that she got, but she got this one called Glim Glory Pictures of Britain Under Fire. Uh, and that's that was, not for Vogue. That's a that book. That was a book. Yeah. So she got the opportunity to kind of like actually take the photos that were meaningful to her. Um, right. And like participate in the war effort. Yes. And her spot, again, like her home was like a big place of gathering for people even through the war. So it's just kind of interesting what's going on in her life. Just imagine like being an artist, taking pictures of the war, like literally right outside your window. Also like having sorees, like... Right, you're friends with Picasso, like... Chaos, honestly. Yeah, they were very much like a part of the artist community um, throughout, throughout all of this. They were such like... If I actually met them, not the only reason I find them endearing in this point is because they are in a war. If they were not in a war, I'd be like, these fucking assholes. Why are we even talking about them? Yeah. You know, they're like the cool guys. They're like hot and skinny and like I would never be able to hang out with them. Right, right. It was like a lot of it feels like about the story a bit like lee goes on a trip at one point and she like wants to get a massage from a bear there's like the gypsies with bears and they can get massages you know she's just like i'm crazy yeah (laughs) and i was like maybe it is good for whatever she has uh right it does seem interesting um so after the attack on pearl harbor american servicemen arrive in england this is 1942 and david sherman suggests to lee that she apply for accreditation to the U.S. forces as a war correspondent. And and so she does, and she gets accredited. And Audrey Withers, who is her copy editor, or she's an editor at Vogue. I'm not sure, like, what her... She's a journalist. Audrey Withers is... Oh, Audrey Withers. Uh, some, she works with Lee, at least. She Okay, she was, I think, editor-in-chief. She edited British Vogue between 1940 and 1960. And... She reflects back on her decision to use Miller as Vogue's war correspondent. And she says, there was a poll to pretend like the war just wasn't happening and to keep up morale. But magazines are about the here and now. And it was wartime. And so this sets Audrey apart from Edna Woman Chase, who was the American editor in chief. Mm-hmm. Like Edna did not get it. Like there was a time when she sees a, Vogue, a photo of the Vogue staff and she's like, why did you paint nylons onto your legs? Like what's going on and they're like uh we can't have nylons because of rations like sometimes she'd get photos back and she'd be like where's the glamour and they're like we're literally i i just imagine her she's she gives very anna kendrick vibes very like disconnected snobby vibe. like i don't know think she's likable but she's not likable um vibes but like because she's just so up in her tower being like why don't you have I don't know, tights. I guess every woman should have had tights too. It's just like, it's so weird to me on the level of like how, how prim and proper and how weird being rich has to, you have to have an aesthetic and it has to back then at least. And it's just like, Mm -hmm. not a vibe. I don't know. Like, why would you even want to be rich like that? Like that sounds not slutty. Yeah. Right. Lee is rich the right way. Exactly. (laughs) Um, 
And so Withers had asked Miller to write a quiet, image-led story on U.S. Army nurses working in the field hospitals of Normandy. When she, What she received from her wayward correspondent was something altogether different. I'm reading out of the Lee Miller in fashion book. What she received was a hard-hitting article entitled Unarmed Warriors, along with 14 photographs of two tent hospitals and a frontline casualty clearing station. It was published in both the American and British issues of September 1944, and established Miller's domination of the major features for Vogue for the next year and a half. So Lee is like sending real ass photos from the war and the magazines are publishing them. Yeah, and she's like point person for that. And for a while, Vogue had really been harrowed by day to like every day to get to work was just a whole new journey and yet they still didn't miss a day they wanted to also count noses to see if any everyone had really lived through it that was a thing it became a matter of pride that work went on the studio never missed a, a day bombed once fired twice i guess that fired twice means like it's got set on fire working with neighboring buildings still smoldering the horrid smell of wet charred wood the stink of cordite the fire hoses still up the staircases, and we had to weigh barefoot to get in. Little restaurants producing food on pre- um, premise stove, carrying water to flush toilets, and whoever could take the prints and negs home to do it at night if they happened to have the sacred combination of gas, electricity, and water. In fact, we slept on the floor of the kitchen corridor and sometimes had 10 or more friends either bombed out of their flats or isolated by the presence of a time bomb, or just thinking that Hampstead was safer. This is kind of just the recalling of Lee's memory of those Vogue times. And yeah, there's this pride of, oh yeah, work work is continuing on. And Lee's also corresponding with Audrey Withers a lot during this time. You know, they're sending letters back and forth. And they seem, they, they have a friendship and they really, some of the letters between them are very like, I don't know, real human sounding like it wasn't a typical work relationship or maybe it was typical for at the time anyway we also have audrey withers is a biography on audrey withers that i'm excited to read her husband put her in a loony bin for a while oh i didn't that's the girl that's audrey withers yeah and so lee is writing about her experiences and she has this like very poetic Writing style, she writes, My heel ground into a dead, detached hand, and I cursed the Germans for this sordid, ugly destruction they had conjured on this once beautiful town. I wondered where my friends that I had known here before the war were, how many had been forced into disloyalty and degradation. She's in Paris. I wondered how many had been forced into disloyalty and degradation, how many had been shot, starved, or what. I picked up the hand and hurled it across the street and ran back the way I'd come, bruising my feet and crashing into the unsteady piles of stone and slipping in blood. Christ, it was awful. Then the Germans withdraw from Paris and Lee heads to Paris knowing that she... She arrives the day that Paris liberation liberated. She said, yeah, like, the liberation of Paris from the Nazis was clearly underway. On August 25th, 1944, an enormous crowd of jubilant Parisians welcomed the 2nd French Armored Division. Miller headed to Paris knowing that she might not be, oh, wonder, knowing that she might not be the first woman journalist on the scene, but she would be the first dame photographer unless someone parachutes in, she wrote to Withers. People are like dancing in the streets, like kissing each other, freaking out. Yeah, she says, after tremendous three-day welcome and hand-waving, this is a telegram, so it's written like a telegram. Everyone exhausted. Paris had a terrible hangover. Town looked like a ballroom morning after. Fountain basin strewn with cigarette butts, but nonetheless beautiful to me. Parisian women, like British women, had been told to keep up 
the routine during the war. Literally, there was like a magazine at some point that was like, remain a coquette. Like you need to be your flirty French self. Yeah. But it's different than in Britain because in Britain, there were, there and Lee felt the need to explain this to readers. Whereas for British women, it was about rationing. Saving material for Parisian women meant helping the Germans. Since Paris was German occupied, their duty as Parisian women was instead to waste. So like, if a dress called for three yards of material, they found 15 for a skirt alone. And the German occupation had ushered in this organized scarcity in Paris where wool, clothes, leather bags, and shoes basically disappeared. French women were using straw, felt, and ribbon to decorate old garments. They made hats from newspaper or blotting paper. And there was a lack of electricity for hairdressers. So they would like power salons with stationary bike. Diana Vreeland wrote about the wood sold shoes that you would hear click clacking around. And the Germans actually tried to steal the Parisian fashion industry. Like that was something that they were gonna try to like take out of Paris Makes sense. and send to Germany. And so they like went to this atelier and he told them basically like, this industry isn't something that you can just move. His name is Lelong. Actually, it is, though. <laughs> well, so what they're saying, though, is that, okay, later that year, it fell to Lelong to negotiate directly with the occupying German regime, which wanted to transfer all aspects of the French fashion industry to Berlin or Vienna. The Nazi plan was to transfer the staff of all the Parisian ateliers and couture houses to Germany or Austria, where they would train up a new generation of German dressmakers and establish the new home of haute couture. Lelong responded that this plan was impossible. French couture, he explained, was the result of decades of educated craftsmanship. Tiny ateliers in France employed thousands of skilled artisans, each one specializing in one small aspect essential to haute couture, such as embroidery or silk flowers. He convinced the German regime that French fashion was dependent on its home environment. So the Nazis returned the archive and agreed to allocate a ration of fabric to couture in order to maintain production and to only draft 5% of the workforce. So what does that mean? It means that, so like, were the Germans drafting soldiers from France? I assume so. I mean, like, it was a German occupation. Yeah. So they were like, you're German now, essentially. And France was like, ew. It's really hard to imagine the story going exactly how they're saying it, but because it sounds like they're like, they go to this this atelier guy and he's like, sorry, French couture is literally so complex, you would never be able to do it. And they're like, okay. And then they just leave. But <laughs> whatever, it is. Maybe they just didn't want to want it hard enough you know they were like oh whatever don't really care that much <laughs> yeah okay but she hadn't seen she hadn't seen picasso in a while so she goes to ali goes to his studio and and they're like reuniting after a while and it's like the end of the occupation and it's like a really you know they're like oh my god how are you yeah well he's like this is the first allied soldier i have seen and it's you what did what was picasso doing the whole time paris was occupied is what i want to know growing tomatoes and drawing them is that really what he was doing well this when she goes and sees him oh yeah he has this little tomato plant that he's been like painting he has like a he's whatever doing a study of tomatoes he's painting a lot of tomatoes lee goes in he like leaves the room and she eats his little cherry tomatoes and he comes back and he's like pissed well, because she probably hadn't seen a fresh fruit. In yeah, so she was long. fucking hungry. She wanted some produce. Yeah, understandably, I would be pissed too. She she ate every single one, and then the last one happened, and she said there was a little mildew, but she was like, "I don't give a shit," and like ate it anyways. And like, well, then yeah, Picasso, Picasso came back in the room, and he was like, "What the fuck?" But then he got over it, and they were like, "We're friends." Because like, yeah, you can't be mad when there was a war that just went on. Like, right. I don't know. 
seems silly. But yeah, that's just the kind of show. Right. And then so all of these designers are coming back to Paris now that it's no longer occupied. Gaparelli comes back and like they're they're like operations were, were still going. And so like when the Nazis invaded Paris, Gaparelli had left behind her couture house and she went to America where her daughter had been born. And then she returned to Paris and had a similar response to Balenciaga when confronted by the fashions that her staff created in her absence, where she was like, I urgently wanted to sweep away the ugliness of the clothes and the incredible horror of the hats. The hats may possibly have evolved from turbans I so often wore, but they had developed into monstrous cobras that might have coiled up to sleep after a dreamy, enormous meal. They bulged in huge waves, leaving the face of the unhappy woman underneath looking like an afterthought. Wow, you sound like a fung hang. I know, dude. She sounds like a biatch. (laughs) Like... She just likes to hear herself talk is what it sounds like. They like they're like, I can't leave you alone for a second. And you're like, Yeah, don't leave me alone in a war next time, please. <laughs> just also just very art the bulging too like I don't know, it's just mm-hmm. like a lot of but I love her, okay? Um, clothes are cool. She Lee gets Lee convinces there's a lot of I don't know. I don't know how true everything is because again it's written by her son and he's always like, No, she convinced them. They didn't come to her ever. She did a lot of the convincing. Well, and a lot of it is through her letters. Of, mm-hmm. So it's a lot of it, I think, is Lee's perspective that he's writing. Yeah. So I am kind of like, it, it's it's giving this notion that she's making the initiative. And I'm like, it, it's, I think it might be con- like both. She's taking the initiative, but I think also they see opportunity. I don't know. It just seems like a lot of her just like creating her own journey. And I'm like, I don't know how true that is. But anyways, mm-hmm. she apparently convinces what's her face editor of Vogue Audrey Withers yeah that she can write you know she wants to be start writing in addition to taking pictures and it takes some convincing and she finally gets to it and then but the thing that she finds out pretty quickly is that she actually hates writing it's like really hard for her and I feel the same way and she does this thing called what she would call boondoggling which is just like basically you fuck around to the very last second I hate that. I it makes it makes me think of Dingleberry. <laughs> There's too many D's and B's to get next to each other and G's. Yeah. Yeah, Boone's I don't mind it, but I'm also just like very relatable content from our girl Lee Miller. Won't write until the very last second and she usually has to drink a lot of alcohol to even start. Yeah, a lot of alcohol. And it got to the point where it was so taxing for her that Roland like wrote to Vogue and was like, please stop making her write. It he is- writes to Audrey Withers, yeah, being like, Audrey, you gotta you gotta stop. You gotta tell her to stop. I just wanna know how much like cause she was so pretty, she could be a total tyrant to these people. Like what what was she doing that they mentioned a lot that she was just like writing was so explicitly bad for her and everybody around her and I'm like was she just being a tyrant was she throwing things because she had to work like I don't understand why sounds like she was drinking a lot she was like fucked up a lot yeah yeah it's just like well that seems to be the root problem not the writing fair <laughs> fair <laughs> Yeah. And being her being a war correspondent and the Germans have left Paris and she unearths she's part of a team that unearths a scene at Nuremberg. There's the Dachau concentration camp that that is liberated. And so she and some other reporters rush there. And at first, what they see is so grotesque that they think it's like a German propaganda stunt. They think it's like planted to look like a horrific scene to like freak people out like as German propaganda like as as a warning but it's actually just concentration camp it's there's just 
bodies upon bodies and starvation and you 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 know what concentration camps are all about yeah she takes pictures of it she takes pictures of it and she sends them to audrey and she says i implore you to believe this is true and it's like i mean it's obviously photography is a really important part of journalism now that's like very normal for us and like you can just imagine at the time people are hearing all these rumors, but you really just don't know. And she's sending photos being like, this is literally what we're seeing. She has like ration chocolate with her and she offers it to someone because these people are emaciated and there's like a stampede of people trying to get to her because she takes out this chocolate and they're like starving. It's just horrific. And then she takes a photo in Hitler's bathtub. The end of the war is happening people are fleeing germany is like on its last foot and they think what they they stumble upon is hitler's home which was very austere in the way that it was presented they said the only way that they could really know is is had an ah um at the very front of the gate but inside you would not think it was this like supreme leader or whatever of of uh mm. nazi it was just like a boring old home she just started taking pictures in his bathtub like you said and there was someone else that was like reading mean kemp which i'm like don't ever read that don't just david david sherman when this happens yeah. and they get in the bed and he lies there on his bed reading the mean kemp and like mind Kampf. mind Kampf. and a uniform <laughs> like yeah it's just a very it's a sight to behold there's like a photo of her with like her muddy combat boots sitting on the child floor it's like it's poignant obviously and she ends up like finding this tray that says ah on it and like you know decorated it was like a silver tray and she took it home and she would actually serve people like tea on it which i'm like dude i don't know that's cool and also like weird she would be such an edgelord on twitter if she was alive today yeah i don't think i would like her on twitter fair i don't i mean yeah people are their least likable selves on twitter <laughs> that's very true but she was definitely that i i yeah i it's interesting they also went to his like mistress's house and like played around there i mean yeah, yeah where are they did they kill themselves well, they don't know right i think that they i think that at this point hitler had been declared dead i think they knew he was dead when they were in his house yeah but no one ever like really found his body or like i think yeah yeah but the idea was like he's in hiding or he's dead either way he's gone they don't know really what happened they mentioned alex lieberman remember him the sculptor yeah yeah he's like impressed with lee it's just like interesting to me when i hear about these people and i'm like oh they overlapped in time yeah the the vogue he started vogue probably in the 40s and 50s and then mm-hmm. stayed for there for what 40 years he's like 20 i think he was 40s through 60s no but he hired our girl Anna Wintour. Oh, like, you're right, you're right, you're right. In the 70s and 80s. Right, right, right. Way later than that. Um, okay. Yeah. Well, the war gets announced that it's over. And somebody, the way she finds out, somebody opened, like she's doing her negatives in, her, in, the, in the room of, you know, making her photography work. And somebody opens the door and says, uh, Germany surrendered or whatever. And like, you know. And then she's like, oh, great. Now close the door before the pictures get ruined. That Lee... Yeah, which I thought was, I was like, I don't know, again, did that really happen? But, you know, good story nonetheless. Yeah, and she's, like, when the war ends, British Vogue becomes Vogue again. And Lee, like, expected to go back to photographing, like, what you would normally photograph for British Vogue. But she 
wants to keep traveling for a while. She's going all over to like newly liberated cities and whatever. And well, expe- well this is the thing. She is restless and she's just like, I think she craved war. I think she liked being part of the heightened experience and the craziness, but it also scarred her. And that's, but she was like, she had lost her, her ability to be adventurous because the war was over. So she was like, how do I get into the countries that are, have the hardest permitting ability? Like, where's the lineup? So she was going to Eastern Europe because she wanted to see how far she could push the line and see if she could do the things that she could do. Yeah. Well, I mean, and like, it's fair that she didn't want to be a studio photographer for a fashion magazine. Like, she, I feel like was, she had discovered that she was really talented at being a photojournalist and wanted to keep doing it. Um, I think, you know, maybe she would have been happy to keep doing it even outside of the war, you know, like maybe it wasn't just war that she craved, but like the sense of purpose and adventure, like being able to adventure with a purpose and whatnot. But like, it's hard on her relationship with Roland. He's like threatening to leave or like they're fighting. Yeah. I mean, it's not the best of times, but it's not the worst of times yet. Her drink is amplified. She goes to a part of Eastern Europe that had like she illegally, which I'm just like, least I don't know. Sometimes the things she does are so privileged and of privileged privileged action. Anyway, so she gets um, arrested at one point while she was taking photo, uh, photographs because she didn't have the right, I guess, paperwork. And somebody, one of her, like the person she was traveling with, went back and he created a fake whole passport thing. Oh and they were just so impressed by how pretty it looked like they hadn't seen like, it was like red or something and they're like this part in eastern europe i forgot what it was but they were like wow yeah that has to be real look how pretty this is and they let her out and i was just like man to be traveling back in the day yeah. like you could just make up anything mm-hmm. yeah you can make up some paperwork dude yeah yeah she's depressed and drinking a lot at this point and Vogue's like you can't travel forever you should come back yeah like we said she also is getting older and she kind of looks like shit (laughs) oh my god yeah Anthony Anthony's description of her body is so brutal I don't like how he talks about her it's like very clear that he inherited a very objectifying sexist way of talking about his mother but I think he learned that from her but as well as like probably the patriarchy because she was very vain in her own right because that's how she got access to the world as she did when she was younger. She was reinforced because with her behaviors because she was so pretty and like that's just the life that she could access. And then afterwards she had gotten some kind of disease oh. after the war when she went back to like – Oh, her like lips were all bleeding? Her gums were constantly bleeding and her lips were like blistered and I mean the war just kind of – Took one on you, you know? Right. She was thrashed. Yeah. Yeah, so she does... She comes back to Roland and she gets pregnant. So Aziz comes and gives her a divorce. (laughs) He's like very nice about it. It's like no big deal. He's like, don't worry about the fact that I was giving you shit tons of money. No, yeah, he gave her like half of his stocks or whatever what is it called when you're on the board, like on the board of like some corporation and you have Mm. like the stockage and like if you have shares shares she gave he gave her a big portion of the shares like i think like half of his and i think he had 50 percent or something like that and she gave he gave her like 25 percent. fuck yeah dude he and, should share the wealth well that was the problem like she, he had wrote her begging her to sign these papers so he wouldn't get kicked out of the board and 
he did get kicked out of the board because he didn't have enough, like, all the shares in her absence. Oh. And that's why he was supposed to be mad at her, but he still wasn't. He He was like... He lost all his money and access to that world because they kicked him out because he... Lee wouldn't show up or sign the paperwork to give back his stuff. Damn. Uh, What a forgiving king. (laughs) Not only was he forgiving, he was like, yeah, of course I'll divorce you, babe. You mean the world to me, but if that makes you happy, I'm just I mean, are they... Like, I wonder how much they've even been talking for the past two years. Like... That's fair. But she was ignoring his mel so like because she should have signed the paperwork by then but right, right i'm sure it was a little bit harder said than done because i'm like how do you even mail somebody yeah, that's in london yeah in the she was like in the war yeah but she has she gives birth to little baby anthony oh she gets pregnant by roland right and then gives birth to and she writes him a letter being like darling i'm soon gonna be able to be picking out knitwear for a little it's like she can't just say anything around like normal she's like darling i'm going to start knitting a little a little shirt like it's how she tells him that she's pregnant <laughs> yeah it's very cute i also want to say that this is an interesting quote that not about her being pregnant but like she she went to the doctor being like i get really depressed mm. and the doctor was like an close friend was like dude there's nothing wrong with you we cannot keep the world permanently a war justifying you with excitement right which i don't ouch. know ouch maybe she needed that but also like Maybe that's not... I mean, she clearly was traumatized. Like, I that's a rude response. Like, I get if you're yeah. kind of like a mean friend saying that, but not when you're like in a medical position. Well, also, it's a very British response. It's like, dude, you're healthy. You you have food. You're not freak. Like, you're not yeah. having flashes, but... Right. You're not allowed to be sad. Yeah, so she has this cute little baby, I guess, a.k.a. Tony, a.k.a. the writer of, of her book. And Roland really wants to be a farmer and he always kind of like they all want to like everybody wants to be a farmer Mm -hmm. right the dream is to be a farmer but they actually live the life that everybody wants because they only go south of london because he doesn't want to leave london because he's already started like a close-knit friend group Mm -hmm. (laughs) which i think is cute and he's very part of the art world and he knows that he could probably be financially successful but he can't move away too far from london so he goes a little bit farther south and starts this thing called farley farm and like he like every great artist He's like, of course I can't do it. I can't be the actual farmer. But I have to hire, like, I'm going to hire people to do it. Right. But, like, what Frank Lloyd Wright did, because he also was, like, of this state of mind. I think it's just interesting how all these kind of, like, artists are, like, back to the earth, you know. And then they're like, me get my hands dirty? Mm -hmm. (laughs) No. But, like, side note, Frank Lloyd Wright got a farm. And he, the way, he was, like, having issues because he wasn't getting his clients because it was in the 30s a bunch of architecture students paid him to be in servants to him and learn under his name and but also like do all the farm work oh so anyways Ugh, okay yeah that's what i want is to like have a farm type establishment i okay basically i just want to have a land where i'm growing stuff and i want like a little adu in the back where i can let someone live there for free as long as they watch my dog whenever i'm out of town that's like my for, for those that aren't in planning accessible dwelling union is an adu so. yeah <laughs> like, accessory dwelling unit yeah it's like basically Sorry, yeah, having accessory. a second unit on the lot and that's like what a lot of zoning and it usually includes a kitchen of some set kind, it's so. like small but it's like a yeah there can be and it can be attached or it can be detached, which is a DADU. It can't be detached actually in Bellevue. Not that it's it a, yeah. So the zoning depends on whether you can have attached or, or or not. But anywho, I just want 
I'm like, if I have land, I'll build extra housing on there so that people can live for free. I just want like to be able to go out of town whenever I want and not pay for a dog sitter and have someone who can just stay there and like take care of Lulu. I just like everybody needs to get paid, you know, or at least be living on the retirement or something. Because that's that's the sketchy thing that happens with communes and stuff like that. Women get in really dangerous situations because they don't have access to like money. So they're kind of like stuck in these positions of being like, I guess. Yeah, I'm... but these people can have other jobs. Okay, yeah, good. I'm glad that we're thinking about it, though. It's not like a, <laughs> yeah, I am glad we're thinking about it. Like, they could have a whole job and a whole life. It's just that they're getting free rent, and the reason they're getting free rent is that they pitch in sometimes. Yeah, 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 yeah. That sounds great. And I'm in control of everything. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm not a cult leader, to be clear. Listen, I'm, yeah. Okay, so that's called Farley Farms. There's a ton of artists who come and hang out. She does this thing that I do, and I thought was really funny. I mean, I haven't done it in a while, because I haven't had people over as guests but she calls them working guests she's just like can't handle the sight of people just being idly standing by and it's it's all in good fun everybody's doing their own damn thing and like making art or do or like helping with the farm yeah she's just like if you're gonna come visit you're gonna do some work baby and that's what i always say i say craft night you mean help me fix this hole in my yeah like and that's how i like to host too like when people ask for a job i give them one because it's like the host where it's like no no you don't need to do anything. I'm like, no, let them participate. Yeah. And so there's all these photos of like famous artists, basically like washing the lettuce or like doing yeah. tasks. And yeah. And Jackie, like for a while, it was always like she'd get us on a ladder to help her with the lights. <laughs> it was like, you come over to Jackie's house and she's going to put you on a fucking ladder. <laughs> yeah. That's the truth of it. That's going to happen again soon in the summer. I'm going to be like, come on over, hang out with me. Yeah. Oh, by the way, I need to get this up here. I'll hold this yeah, real quick. Just like, climb up there. Don't worry about it. Just dig this ditch. And Lee, oh. like, has stopped taking photos. She is has just really left that part of she's her life it. behind. She's over it. She's traumatized. She's like, if I can't take photos of war, if you're just going to make me take photos of fucking clothes, I'm over it. Yeah, that doesn't sound... Yeah. She just... was never actually that into fashion. She really wasn't. She had a very boyish style, like we said earlier. Like, she loved the big pants, high-waisted... And she's like into what's happening and fashion is what's happening. She was, you know, writing for British Vogue and explaining to them what Parisian women had been doing during the war. But I think, yeah, for her, for herself, it wasn't like her, her true passion. Yeah. And then she's getting older now. You know, she's getting in her 40s. And back then, okay, here, here's the quote that you were looking for. Okay, so this is 1955. Okay. Lee was in the grip of a vicious downward spiral that nearly killed her. So she's almost 50 then. Yeah, but not all, but she's still in her 40s, technically. And she does apparently, as Tony writes, <laughs> following the birth of Tony, aka the writer, she had suddenly found herself unable to get any pleasure from sex. The, just writing that about your mother, it's like, how do you know that? I yeah. mean, she was no longer squirting. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't hear any O's come out of her in like months. Yeah, right. <laughs> and he also writes, she was also rapidly losing her looks. Like, calm down. I know. I know. Rapidly. Yeah. Every day was getting uglier and uglier. I like, wonder if like that was if she wrote that or if he was. She was dead when he wrote this. Well, I know. But like he's going off of a lot of letters. I'm just curious. Like. I don't know. He was there for this. So, but maybe he was. I know, but I'm just, I'm also curious. Like, you can imagine someone like Lee writing about and feeling really insecure about her looks going. Yeah. I don't know. There's no, 
the, you don't see none of it's here. It's all written in his like because he does do call outs and like, but that's a possibility. One thing they talk about in the book is like the relationship between Antony and Lee and how like they fight a ton and like they don't really understand each other. They're kind of just like he and he's raised a lot by like nannies and such. Yeah, I mean that was like how she got the stuff done. But like, but I mean, she's not working at this point. So it's like, she's like really into cooking. She's like living a full life of hobbies because she has a lot of help. He also says that her face no longer had a fineness. Wrinkles and folds were proli- proliferating and her eyes were becoming puffy. It's like the detail to that didn't, not necessary. I know. Her hair was getting thinner and lifeless. The fat was piling on, making her body look coarse and bulky rude very rude to make matters worse the woman who had once been described as snappy jester was fast becoming a slob that is kind of a sin you can't you can't fall you can't if you feel if you feel like you're falling getting farther into depression the one thing that might help you a little bit is make sure that your outfit is not showcasing that it's like not always helpful but it's a trick well i think yeah overall it's showing that she's like she's not caring about herself. She's not caring about herself. And one thing we breezed past was at one point, Roland is with a trapeze artist. This is like when she's pregnant or right after she has the kid. He is like begging this trapeze artist to marry him and she won't. And like, yeah, like I think Lee and the trapeze artist don't like get along super well, but really it's like that lady's like looking out for her in a way in mm-hmm. like not letting Roland marry her. But you know, any the surrealist loosey-goosey lifestyle yeah well continuing lee was like i don't have sex you can go out and fuck some other people yeah obviously like you have been right what is gonna be something us getting married shouldn't stop that yeah but she gets a little bit jealous because roland obviously falls in love with one of the people that he's fucking and now she's like this is my arch nemesis she didn't actually want to marry roland so roland was like stuck with lee for that time period and i mean they do they like they're still traveling together like he gets her like a cooking he like supports her as she's getting they're married yeah well i'm saying that like they i i I don't really see it as like a bitter we can't get like if they wanted to get divorced they would i think well i i mean men avoid divorce unless there's another woman set up for him and that was like the thing he wanted to marry this woman and was would be open to divorce but only if that woman was there to, to marry. Yeah, I I can also like I I think it could be the kind of thing where like a few years pass and it's like trapeze artist who yeah like I think that totally. like they like move past it or whatever and it's like obviously yeah it's not like things really go back to being the same like Lee but because that woman said she didn't want to marry him yeah that's exactly why. right 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 yeah <laughs> um, Lee like throws herself into cooking she gets really into Norwegian cooking she's like hosting a ton and she's always like writing down her friends preferences like greg doesn't like guacamole cassandra loves kumquats and she's like a really sweet host and like gets really into like these cooking methods just make a normal meal for once god damn it she's like smoking fish and like well because it was norwegian norwegian she was really into norwegian cooking and she's like entering like norwegian cooking contests. yeah it was very particular and everybody like apparently like 
everybody hated it. Everybody was like, why are you making this food? It's not good. And they were like, hide their food underneath this couch. Apparently. But she's like winning contests. It's like. If, yeah, but Norwegians are like, this is the best food. This is the best disgusting fish ever. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. She was like world renowned at this point, I guess, for her Norwegian cooking and yeah. barley farm. Yeah, which is just kind of a really niche thing. It's weird because I was I went on a date recently a while ago and talking about like Roland and and we weren't talking about Roland and Lee but we were talking about relationships and I was like have you ever seen a relationship at ten years it's not it doesn't look fun he was like yeah but what at fifty and I was like that is a good point years eight through forty are real rough but once you pass that forty years or whatever like that longevity you kind of just like oh this is the person I guess I'm hanging out with and there's just like a more of a camaraderie like my grandparents fought all I could remember when I was a kid when they were both coherent and able-bodied fought like bad like yelling screaming normal to uh, the household at the end of their life my grandma when she had dementia and um, my grandpa it was like the sweetest most he was like I'm gonna I'm gonna wait to die after her he'd call her bunny and be like oh I love seeing you smile bunny and she just it's disgusting so I don't know anyways yeah I mean my grandparents similarly like my dad talks about how like when he was in high school I mean obviously it happens different ways for a lot of different people but like when he was in high school they fought a ton and like it almost sounded like maybe like I think the way my dad described it he was like Papa made a mistake or something where we were like did Papa cheat on (laughs) Nana that's such a funny thing to say I know I know and I don't know that like he really knows exactly what happened but like the relationship I've always known between them is like disgustingly cute where like my grandma broke her arm at one point like this is like they're like in their 60s and my grandpa was like yeah or she was like yeah your papa has to help me get dressed in the morning and then get undressed and he's like it's the undressing that i prefer and it's like (laughs) they're just really sweet yeah it's anywho um but they that's the thing that comes with roland and lee especially toward in old age, their relationship, they really kind of lean into each other. But yeah, she also quit smoking during this time period. And for the first year of her not smoking, she's not feeling good in her body. She's trying a new hobby and she quit smoking all at the same time. Um, apparently she's, again, a tyrant. I don't know how she gets away with it, but people, everybody that's around her is given hell. And again, at this point, her son, who is writing this he's remembering book, this. is remembering this. He is there. He's fighting with his mom. He doesn't know who she is. Like, basically, he doesn't understand her past and her career until she dies. And yeah. he goes through all of her stuff. He knows that her his parents are in the art world. There's pictures of him being held by Picasso. Like, he understands. But it's like, basically, when Lee gets married she decides that Roland is going to be the artist and that like, and it's, you know, partly it's like the circumstances with her job at Vogue in the war and whatever. What I'm saying is that Anthony didn't know about her career and a lot of people didn't. She just said, Oh yeah, I used to take some photos at one point. And the way that he learned about her life and legacy was going through her stuff. He's made it basically his life's mission now to commemorate her work teach people about her life yeah because he has all this time i just feel like he has to be so rich yeah he has all these paintings i'm sure he inherited he's the only child of roland Mm -hmm. 
I mean, again, she's in this deep depression, but like he's very clear on that thing that really saved her, really saved Lee during this time was cooking and mm. making food. Mm. Otherwise, he's like, I'm pretty sure she would have offed herself. And she goes to Cordon Bleu. She really does the research and goes in on it because she's just like, I got to not be thinking about, you know, idle hands. What is what is the term? I don't, something about the devil. Yeah, something about the devil. The devil's playground? I don't know. Well, you just like, if you... To get out of, out of your mind, you got to do something physical with your body. And you got to distract yourself. Otherwise, you could just sit all day and think of the worst thoughts ever. Sometimes it depends with me. Sometimes I'm, I can sit around and think about the most fascinating thing in the world and just sit there and think about it and zone out. Or I could just, you know, fall into a hole. It really depends on the day. But for her, she wasn't. it wasn't good for her to be not doing something. Mm -hmm. And she even wanted to, she threatened to write a cookbook, which I thought was really funny. An idea that stoked fear on everybody in the household because they had remembered how much of a tyrant she was when she was trying to write. Again, mm. mostly because of her, her alcoholism, less because of her writing. She's a good writer. <laughs> it just takes her a lot of time and drugs. And she's mad at everybody. Yeah. Also starts going on Benson, what's it, Benzy? I told you about Oh. It. Benzapro or whatever. It's like the drug that all the housewives took at some point. Mm. And she was doing that and alcohol. And she was spiraling bad. I don't know how she got off that drug because it's basically methamphetamine. And it's like all they were like diet pills slash supposed to help with like staying up. Hmm. Straight up mess. Like so, so she wasn't sleeping mm. and she would to go to sleep. She would drink a bunch of alcohol. Mm. Um, this is why all these fucking women during this time peri period are insane. That's why they're all like, I'm sure my grandma, I don't know, somebody, they all were on fucking pills and losing their goddamn mind and mm -hmm. drinking to deal. It's just yeah, insane to think about. Um, and that's what was happening to her. But again, she was coming out of it. The more she cooked, the more she was thriving and she was doing cooking competitions. Um, eventually, her mother had died in the in 1954 so after that um theodore would her dad would come and visit in a wheelchair and they would go look at bridges all over europe <laughs> and he even went to go they hung out with peggy guggenheim um who was one of the first people they visited when theodore came she like showed him around because peggy peggy guggenheim was actually married to max Ernest for like a like a short amount of time um and she's stationed in venice i actually went to her house um and so that's where they went was like this place in venice and they got to take her personal what's it called those long boats in in venice oh, gondola gondola tour which would have been which is way easier than carting theodore around on his wheelchair you know so it, it was he had a great time and he loved just sitting at the farm and hanging out with his kid uh with his grandkid tony apparently according to tony oh and he said he was always generous with his encouragement. And I was like, did you have any other grandparents? I don't think he did. I don't, we never talk about Roland's parents. Oh, yeah. And I just think that's really kind of sweet. But also another thing she, with the Norwegian Food Center, she won apparently. I, I don't believe this story either, but it's a thing because she was winning all, all these Norwegian contests. But the, when she did the Food Center one, there was a place for first, second, and third. And she got all of them. That can't be true. Why? You, why would why would she have to get all of them? Because maybe like she made like multiple dishes. I don't know how it works. But... I don't know how it works either. But that seems, it seems like a fluke. But Tony's so proud. Yeah, she visits Aziz toward the end of his life. Oh, and he interesting. Was, like, penniless again because of her. 
damn, dude. <laughs> Not really. Apparently, the socialist government actually took any money that he had left, um, which is like, you know, how it works if you're too rich. But he, you know, and she felt bad seeing him. And I was like, he might be fine. Like, yeah. I don't know. It's just not the exquisite lifestyle that he, she had known him to thrive in. Yeah. He was kind of, had a meager pension and, but he had somebody that was caregiving for him. So mm-hmm. I don't he's, see what's. He's probably okay. He's probably all right. But she's still kind of was somber about the whole experience and visiting back into Egypt. Of course, her and Roland, I, like I said, were getting like, as age happens, closer and then she dies of cancer july 21st 1977 yeah she did get to meet her grandkid and she did get to meet like tony's wife um and they all start stayed on the farley farm for a while and it seems like a good period of life uh towards the end of her life mm-hmm. i don't know if she ever recovered from alcoholism they never really bring that up so i'm assuming Probably not. Probably not. Yeah. And so Farley Farms is a place you can visit now. It's like preserved as like a museum. We really want to go visit England. Mm -hmm. And and this would definitely be one of the stops. Um, Yeah. There seem to be like several other books about Lee Miller. I wonder if like Antony was the one who like started it. Because like, yeah, like I was saying, he figured out who she was like after she died like literally didn't know about his mom's career and now has like made it oh wow the book is dedicated to david e sherman who gave me the title and the courage to write the book around it so like he knows david sherman you know what would you remember who that is no it's her lover the 25-year-old lover who lives with her and roland and who is traveling and being a photojournalist with her um published in 1988 he, was, he became older eventually <laughs> okay so this was first published in 1985 the lives of lee miller and then lee miller in fashion was published in 2013 so which one was first then antony's by by 30 years so um yeah, and so I think that's interesting. The Lives of Lee Miller is definitely more about her life. It does like a full birth to death biography, whereas Lee Miller in fashion, it's like really more digging into her career. And I really liked it because it shows so much of her photography. And yeah, just really felt connected to Lee, man. It was just such a wild ride. Yeah, Anthony. Penrose is a photographer as well, maybe a painter, but definitely a photographer. There's um, also like a podcast about Lee Miller that's by her granddaughter. Like they're all the whole fucking family is just really obsessed with her. Obsessed with her. I mean, I would be too. Yeah, I would be too. Um, makes I I feel like damn it, I'm just so jealous of her life. Is really what it comes down to. It's like. She got to do all the things except for the war part. That was like her favorite part. I know. She was thriving. Um, but I really don't want that. I think I would not thrive in that capacity. You would have just stayed home with the rich husband and done art all day. And like hang out with the artists. Maybe. But less of the excursions maybe. I don't know. I think it, everybody, it shocked everybody what their role was. It ended up being like Picasso was really shocked that Roland was wearing like camo and like being part of the war right right um 
I don't know what will happen. I just, I would not like not having food. That would be my big fear is going hungry. Yeah. Anyways. That's all. That's all, folks. All right. Well, thank, we love you. We, we love appreciate you. you. I love you. I love you. Well, thanks. Bye.